Welcome to Empire Building, the podcast where we talk about building big businesses and even bigger lives. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sarah Reynolds. Earlier this year, I had the absolute honor of interviewing a leadership icon of mine. It's a woman by the name of Mo Anderson. I did the interview as part of the Her Leadership Life Masterclass that we developed at Her Best Life. So I want you to get out a pen and paper or open up a new note on your phone because I'm going to let you eavesdrop and hear this special interview. Get ready to learn from a remarkable leader that built one of the largest real estate empires in the world. Hope you enjoy it. I have such an honor to introduce Mo Anderson, who was the first CEO and current co-owner of Keller Williams International. Can we just pause for a moment? In 1995, Gary Keller promoted Mo Anderson as CEO. And I, I looked it up. There were zero CEOs on the Fortune 500 list that were females when Mo became CEO of Keller Williams. That's right. He, she has shattered glass ceilings for female leaders and has done it so beautifully. Um, and we get today to, to learn from her. She also is chairman of the board of KW Cares, an amazing worthy cause that gives back to agents everywhere. And then I know she's so proud and we are so proud um, that she's a member of the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. That is Mo Anderson. She took Keller Williams. I just have to, I have to share. I'm a, num- I'm a numbers girl. So I got to share this. When she um, joined Keller Williams as Gary Keller's CEO, as K- KW CEO, there were 35 market centers. 30, there were 30, 30, 30, 30 market centers. And in 10 years, in a decade, she grew the largest real estate brokerage to 530 market centers. Did I get that one right? 530 mil? You got it. You got it. We, and we went from 1800 agents. That's how many there were when I came on board as CEO to over 50,000. Wow. Oh my goodness. And it took massive leadership and grit and determination. Um, I, and just being so focused on what you shared uh, with me before we got started, which is about the heart level, not the intellectual level, which we're going to talk about here in a second. So if it's okay with everyone, I have a list of 23 questions. I don't think we're going to get through all of them. I'm going to do my best to get through as many as possible, but get your pen out, eliminate distractions because we are truly uh, get to learn uh, from a legend in leadership today. Um, And so welcome to the Her Best Life community, Mo Anderson. Well, I am so thrilled to be here and so honored to be invited. Thank you, Sarah. It's, I just really am excited. We, we are so excited and blessed uh, to have you. So I've got some questions for you, Mo. And I am coming, I'm, a, I'm 38. Uh, Mo started um, her career. She met Gary at 54 and became CEO at 57 years old. And, and to, I'll be 86 in May. 
So wow. in May, I will be four years away from 90. I can't believe it. Where did the time go? <laughs> and you have impacted millions of lives uh, throughout that time. So I, I have a question. So 54 years old, you meet Gary Keller. Right. You, you then get promoted to be uh, CEO of Keller Williams at 57. Well, I opened a region first and okay. we did so well. And Gary thought we did, we did well because we were really good about following his models and systems. But what he later learned was that we did well because of who we were and how we treated people. And our, we had this burning desire to succeed. So it wasn't all about his models and systems. It had a little bit to do with the people. <laughs> wow. So so what were the things? What were the things that you did that made it different? So every region had models, his models and systems, right? So if it was the models and systems, then all the regions would have the same success, right? That's right, but they didn't. We so succeeded what, what did you at do? a high, high level. Uh, I held everyone accountable to go buy the book, so to speak, mm. because I recognized the genius in his systems. I recognized that he had a decision-making model. I'd had one just like it in my first real estate company, but it's it's an ingenious decision-making model because it allows the top producing agents of the market center to establish market center policy. I realized his profit sharing program would create so much synergy between the owner of the office and the agents. I had profit shared in my company only two levels. <laughs> Here, he mm. had developed it to seven levels. I was just astounded when I saw it. And the third thing I saw is he had an economic model that I believed would survive and flourish during downturns in the market. And, and that is the reason why Yale, um, I'm sorry, Stanford University wrote the white paper about us because they couldn't believe we were growing in those downturns and everybody else was going downhill. Mm. How did you, what did you do to um, really um, feed the synergy between owners and agents? Well, because people realize that when you teach profit sharing, people realize that anyone who made a transaction where the market center uh, received part of the money, part of that commission, it made the profit sharing pool larger. And that meant everybody got a little bit more money in their check because the profit pool was larger. That's the kind of synergism it created. And if you look at traditional real estate, uh, most agents are really jealous and angry when the owner of their office makes money. 
Mm. Which is silly. It means Mm -hmm. there's an immaturity in their thinking, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And in our company, agents who get profit sharing are thrilled to death when the owner makes money because they know that those who are interested in profit sharing will get up to about 48% of it. In addition to that, agents can share in profit profit pools all over North America, and they can share in the worldwide uh, revenue share program in 52 other countries. That's awesome. No, that that is. and, And I want to amplify you and what you did that was different. So that system, right, is across the board. But what I heard, the goal that you said, and I, and I, I want to make sure to try to pitch pull out all of these gold nuggets that you have to share with us. Um, you you said to me before we started that you were obsessed with implementing Gary's vision, right? That you were obsessed with impl- implementing his vision. And it sounds like you did that through training, teaching. Is that right? Right. Uh, and now nowadays, I've discovered that in most market centers, the profit share program and how it actually works isn't even taught. And new people don't even know what it is. Mm. When I started my Keller Williams office, I made sure that was taught at least three times a week. And I taught my ALC to teach it. And then if anybody wanted a friend or a uh, a co-worker in the industry to hear about our profit share program, there would be three times during the week they could come and hear, hear it being taught. And I tried to teach them it doesn't matter if you have one in that class or if you have 30 in that class. That We don't care. Just so people have a chance to hear it because our new people they need to hear how it works in the event they're interested in developing passive income. And of course, I teach our people, you should have at least 10 sources of passive income Mm. because you want to live on your passive income and everything else goes to fund your dreams and your goals and you send your kids to college and, and so, you so the, do all these wonderful things for your great grandchildren and your grandchildren. So, I love it. I love it. So the big, the big gold nugget there, guys, is how often are you teaching your people? How often are you training? You're, you take your system and your model that you that you that sets your business apart, but how often are you teaching it? How often are you training it? Now your your background is in teaching, right, right now? Right. So do you think that's the reason you gravitated to that? Because I had to learn that. It took me a long time to learn that I need to be training and teaching my people more. Well, I, when I was teaching music in the public schools, I loved it. And I was really uh, effective with fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. I had them singing in three-part harmony. Uh, We studied uh, A Mall in the Night Visitors, which is an opera. And what I discovered in teaching is that it doesn't matter what industry you're in. 
teaching taught me the value of having very high standards because Mm. my kids were better than the kids in any other school. And I've got the the tapes and the digital CDs to prove it. And, And the standards today are nothing like what I had back when I taught. And And it's amazing how people are lifted up by high standards. When Mm. there are no standards, you just have mediocrity and below mediocrity. I just finished um, becoming OP of a market center that had had very, very difficult problems. And it was about to collapse. And I took it over, and the first thing I did with the team leader was to talk about what standards are you going to have in your market center? Or to a top agent, I say, what standards are you going to have in your team, on your team? And it was so exciting to watch her establish, she and her team you know, the MCA and all of the people involved on her team, they came up with fabulous standards. So she she had special meetings to go over the manual to teach the, everybody what the standards were. It was a mandatory meeting. And if they didn't come, they would be dehired. If they're not interested enough in the market center or interested enough in the team to come to that kind of a meeting, then it's goodbye. We love you, but goodbye. So I said to them, um, to the team leader and her team, I said, "Do the name of their office is Elite, Keller Williams Realty Elite. I said, do you really want to be Elite? And if you don't, Mm. we need to change our name to Mediocre. (laughs) You get that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that she she was determined to make the standards around being elite. Now you said something, you said something that I want to I want to make sure that I caught, and then also that all, all of the HBL community caught as well. You said that she went to her team to develop right. the standards. I work with her and and encourage her in her leadership and then she, and then I point out the things that are oftentimes really good to work with her leaders so she won't be afraid to try it or she'll be encouraged to try it um because There are just certain principles in leadership. If you don't do, you're not going to lead as well as you could. Yes. Now, one of those things. And having high standards is one of the most important. But but you got the agents and or the team members to have buy-in to the standards. And you did that by involving them, right? Right. And by and by teaching her how to do that, I would would role play and I'd say, "Okay, you're going to have your standards meeting. Now, I'm an agent who thinks this is really silly. 
You know, why do we have to have a standards meeting? So how are you going to open that discussion? Discussion. Do you have a powerful story to tell? How are you going to open it? And then she told me what she was going to do. And I thought it was good. Then she hits all of her standards and why that her team set that standard because they involved some top producers in the market center and setting them. Yep. And it was, you know, it was the ALC, not just her and her team. Then I said, when the meeting's over, how are you going to tie that bow of consensus where everyone is in agreement? So her opening was so important and her closing was so important. Mm. And that's how I could coach her. And um, it was so much fun to watch her. She's probably one of my best hires ever. And, you know, she's just so much fun to coach because she just innately knows yeah, responds. So, so it's fun. So Gary says a lot. Gary Keller has said a lot to me. Authorship is ownership, and he shared with me once that you are one of the best at that concept, involving others, and at the same time holding standards. Which I think sometimes people think that collaboration means you don't have standards, meaning everyone's opinion, everything can run like one way or the other. How do you, how did you determine um, when to collaborate or when to hold the line on something? Like it was, it, it can be confusing for me. I get confused sometimes on, okay, I want to collaborate. I want to involve others. And sometimes it can sort of backfire because if there are suggestions, they don't know some of the processes or know the behind the scenes something, they might suggest something that you can't do. So then you're feeling like you're letting them down if that's making sense. How did you determine when to collaborate and when to not? Um, I I usually, let me back up. <clears throat> Probably the most important thing a leader needs to do, and on your sheet you had said, is there a question I haven't asked that I should? I was going to yes. tell you to ask this. Uh, what is the most important thing a leader needs to do? And my answer to that is um, probably not politically correct, but I really don't care. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, it is to develop your faith. Mm. Because when you, whatever it is, because when you develop your faith, that's where you get your values. Mm. And your standards will come from your values. And I, I really made an effort to discipline myself. For years, when I was CEO, to have my quiet time at five o'clock in the morning from five to six before I did anything else so that I could reinforce 
my values, and I could check to make sure my standards were on track. Because there are eternal truths. I know everybody now says, well, it's my truth. Well, you know what? I'm not interested in your truth. I'm not interested in my truth. I'm interested in the truth. Do do you get my point? Yep. And most, many of these truths are found in all of our holy books. And um, I found that to be the best foundational thing to do that made me stay on track as the CEO. Mm. It helped me in every way. It helped me not to get as angry (laughs) when I had conflict that I was dealing with. Uh, It helped me to, to, I was always reminded when I'd have my quiet time to start with love. Then put the dagger in <laughs> and then end with love. Mm, no matter so who they are. So when when I choose to to move to collaboration, it's usually when we need to tweak something or we're not sure it's something's a good idea. Because I've learned that it's so important to have a what I call a black hatter in your sphere, in on your team, because the black hatter has saved my life several times. Because mm. I'm I tend to be a more positive person, and when an idea comes up, I I don't even think about what could happen or what might happen. And the black hatter always thinks of it. They always think of the negative before they think of the positive. And black hatters are wonderful. You don't want too many of them, but you always want to have one black hatter. And that relates to our Y4C2Ts, which says creativity, ideas before results. And what that really means is whatever idea you have, whether your best lives or whether you're a real estate team rainmaker, whatever you are, whatever the idea It needs to be brainstormed and everybody reach kind of a collaboration because it will always, the idea will always grow better when you do that. And number two, it will prevent you from doing something that results in what you don't want (laughs) because the Black Hatter will have identified that. And you hadn't even thought of it. Mm. So, it, so it's a, what I'm hearing is it's important to collaborate when we are stuck or yes. need to move forward on something, but not just collaborate. What I'm hearing you say is the mix of the room and who we're collaborating with as leaders matters. So it's not just, we don't want all yes people around us. No. Always, right? No. And th- those 
know people or the ones that point out to you every possible thing that could go wrong are so valuable. Mm. And you never must let your ego get in the way of hearing what they're saying. Um, That's so good. How how did you see standards? I'm not going to compromise on. For example, uh, I had an owner one time that when I first came aboard as CEO, he was spending his retirement money on his market center and it was failing miserably. Well, my standard is you don't spend your retirement money on a Keller Williams Market Center. See, if I had been CEO, I would never have allowed him to be approved Mm. because I'm not, my conscience could not let him lose any more money. Mm. So I went to see him And I told him, I said, I respect your capital more than you respect it. And my conscience will not allow me to let you continue to lose money. He had been at it for three years and he was going to use up all of his money. Wow. And I knew that's all he had. Wow. I said, I'm going to, I'm putting you in default And I'm going to give you 30 days to sell your company to someone we would approve. Now, he really didn't have anything to sell except some desks and computers and that kind of thing. Because there was no value in the company. But at Mm. least I got him out and he got to sell his hard assets. And he wasn't real happy about it, but you can't believe for five to 10 years, he would write me every year and thank me. And you've heard my pornographic story. See, that's a standard. I'm not going to let anybody use the Keller Williams servers to send porn. No. As long as I'm alive. (laughs) That won't no. happen. No. And so I put my foot down and I kicked him out of the company. Mm. So I don't collaborate on those decisions. So I you don't, yeah, do that's so good. What I believe is the right thing. What? Where does that courage come from for you? I think it comes from having grown up in poverty I'm so thankful now that I grew up with nothing. I wore feed feed sack dresses to school. I wore shoes that had holes in the bottom of them. And I was what you would call Oklahoma poor. But my parents absolutely made me learn a work ethic. I started milking cows on our farm even though my little hands could hardly handle it, but I learned how to do that. I've plowed fields from morning until night, year after year. And I would put my work ethic up against everybody. I would wear Gary out. I don't, I've heard him tell in groups that 
when I opened my region and he came to Oklahoma, I'd start him at 7.30 and I wouldn't let him quit until 11 and his tongue was hanging out. You know, he thought that woman is crazy. She just doesn't stop. Um, and then he saw me when I came to Austin to be CEO. We didn't have the money to hire staff. Mm. I didn't even have an assistant. And I would get to the office at six in the morning and I would stay until 2 a.m., come home and sleep about three hours. I could do it back then because I was a lot younger. I couldn't do that now. But um, that's where I got that determination. I determined when I was eight that when I grew up, I would not be poor mm. and that I wanted to make more money than I needed because I never got to buy anybody a gift or, you know, do anything like that. If we made Christmas gifts, they had to be homemade. Mm. Something we had on the farm that we could turn into a gift. And so I'm really grateful for that upbringing because uh, when I was CEO of Keller Williams, it was Keller Who. And I would ford the rivers and the streams, so to speak, and pull the arrows out of my back. You know, we even had our Inmans back in that day and age. <laughs> mm. It was uh -oh. tough. I'd get stood up. I'd go to the big boy meetings and I'd have Keller Williams on my badge. The minute they saw Keller Williams, they would turn around and walk away from me. So... When you're in poverty, you learn a lot of rejection. Yeah. And, and when you work hard, um, it prepares you for your future. So true. So true. So I think you made a commitment to yourself at eight years old that you kept, which I think every time we make we keep a commitment to ourselves, it gives us courage to keep going. Mm -hmm. And I think that that alone, you living up to the commitment you made at eight is probably a lot of where you get that courage from. Now you and then I, and then see I I was a music teacher and I found out in the first year I was teaching music I would never make more money than I needed because yes. because of the yeah. sad situation that exists in public schools. So when my husband came home and kind of pushed me into real estate. That's that was the factor that made me consider it. So, so I have to ask you. This, this is something that's been, and I've, I've gone back and forth about my wording on this question. Um, but it, I went to Gathering of Eagles last year, which is like a brokerage. Yes, I've room, been there. Okay, okay. So I walk into the room, and m the majority of the room are males. Uh, and this is 2022, 2000, 2022. Okay. The majority of the room are males, old, older, older males. Um, the majority of the people on the stage were, were men as well. And I realized the brokerage world is led very much by, by many men, right? And you became CEO of Keller Williams in 1995. Did, did you know at the time that you were breaking ceilings for females? 
I, I'm so used to breaking glass ceilings. Example, I was the first woman chairman of the Oklahoma Real Estate Commission. I was the first person ever who ever was chairman two terms. I was the first female president of the Chamber of Commerce. When I was in the chamber, uh, everybody was a guy. There was just guys and me. And then, of course, I got some of my friends to join the, the chamber. And they were so wonderful to me because they would say, oh, Mo, we see more signs. You're doing good. And so I really credit them for the encouragement. And uh, so that, you know, see, I, with me going to be 86 in May, that was a long time ago. <laughs> And um, so I, I was used to that. So when I knew I was the only female, I chuckled and told Gary, well, you have done something pretty major, Gary. You not only hired a female, you hired a 57-year-old female. And people are shocked when they know that I was that old when he gave me such a wonderful opportunity. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, girls, my 70s absolutely was my best. That was my best decade. And my 80s are coming in so strong, it would shock you. <laughs> I, I, love I didn't it. know it would be so good when you're old. <laughs> It, it is. It's amazing. And I just have to tell you, as a, a, a female leader, female entrepreneur, female business owner, how grateful we are uh, for what you have led the way and paved for us. We still have a lot of uh, growth to do. Uh, and I'm just so grateful. How, how did you overcome like imposter syndrome or not feeling like you were supposed to be there? Or... I, I still struggle with imposter syndrome. When you mm. invited me to speak to this wonderful group, I thought, well, I'm I'm probably not good enough. I She probably needs somebody like Gary or, well, he's not a woman, but <laughs> somebody like, you know, no, we like need him. So I still struggle from that poverty complex that you develop, which turns into an imposter syndrome. But I've been able to get over a lot of it because one thing I got over is when I got my first big commission check, I felt real guilty because I really mm. didn't do a whole lot on that. It was an easy transaction and I felt unworthy of the money. Well, folks, I got over that because there are too many yes. transactions where you are in the ditch and you work your tail off to get them to Yes. Play. So I have been able to overcome a lot of that, but the imposter syndrome still hits me. What helps you overcome it? Like, what helps you just keep going and to do it? Like, even though you struggle with it, what was the thing that drove you to continue? Uh, mindset. And I really began to excel in being able to do that when I took Quantum Leap, that mm. class that Gary wrote um, as a kind of a, as really a class for his son, that when he got older, you know, he wanted him to 
um, take it. And, and then see, I started, I wouldn't teach it because I'm not as good as Gary in teaching it. Well, that was stupid. I have my own style of teaching it. He has his own style. My style is more uh, heartfelt to get it into the emotions and not just the intellect. His style is more the intellect because, Mm. see, he's up there so high intellectually. And I discovered that people had great reactions to me teaching it. So I got over it. I was so excited when I got over it. <laughs> so, so what I'm hearing that helped you get over it is the the impact mindset. Yes, and that's what I learned in that class. So every time the thought came in, when you asked me to do this, and I felt that imposter thing, I said, <clears throat> "You do not have the right thought. You do not have the right to dwell in my head." So be gone. Mm. So I just make that and affirmation yes. every time it pops into my head. Because mm. you and I know who puts it there. Yep. So good. So good. Do you think leadership is a calling or do you think people fall into it? Do you think, from your perspective, is leadership um, like... You know, a lot of people say you're you were either born a leader or not born a leader. Um, there's a whole tons of articles on this topic. What's Mo's opinion on leadership? Well, my opinion is that many people are born to be a leader. Um, now, I think certain people can be taught to be a leader. I think both happen. In my case. When I was in the fourth grade, I came home from school one day and my mother sat me down on our rickety old sofa with the spring sticking out. And she said, well, tell me about school today. And I told her and I mentioned some committee that we were forming. And she said, I want you to be on every single committee you can be on. In fact, hun, I want you to be chairman of every single committee you can be on because I believe, now I was in the fourth grade, she said, I believe you have some natural leadership abilities. Mm. And if you'll do this all through grade school, junior high and high school, you will have an opportunity to practice your leadership. And then when you're out of high school, you'll be way ahead of the others. Well, look what happened. So I was kind of a bossy kid and, you know, I wanted to be the one to pick the players on my team and all that kind of stuff. And it was in an era where women were supposed to shut up, where women were never supposed to be anything but a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher. Mm. And, um, you know, we, as mothers, we just need to be so, so diligent in encouraging our children. When they have a crazy dream that you know is big and crazy and probably will never happen, you just encourage them. 
You know, that's a great dream. Now, how in the world will we make that happen? Let's talk about that. And see, that's what my mom did for me in that moment. She made Mm. me aware that that bossiness was really the ability to influence and to lead. Yes. You get my point? So good. When I did my AVA and... He told me I was highly aggressive. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) See, I was ashamed of being aggressive. Yeah, me too. When he said, why are you ashamed? Only 1% of the population has your score. And it was, you know, a CEO score. And he's the one who told Gary, quit looking for a CEO. You've got one in your company. Wow. I didn't know that. And it was uh, it was Bain Hinion on the AV. Wow. That's when he approached me. And I thought he was out of his mind for approaching me because I was helping him find people. <laughs> wow. I brought so, Dave Jinx to him. I brought, I think, two others. Other people to lead. And really, you were, you were. And he, at that time, he wasn't interested in Dave Jinx. And then later I, I hired Dave Jinx. (laughs) (laughs) So that, so the thing, the thing that you internally were putting down is actually the gift that you were given to lead. Like, so your aggressiveness, I'm, I also had a very similar conversation with the circle of women that have really amplified me over the years that are the co-founders of her best life. And, you know, I'm a nine out of 10 on the aggressive scale and just like, as you are, and I was putting that down as well, but you leaning into that for leadership is what I'm hearing you say versus running from it. Right. And then when you learn to put the love with that aggressiveness, Mm. you use it in the beginning and then, you know, at the end of, of a fierce conversation, then they'll start calling you the velvet hammer. Wow. 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 That was so, so good. I loved listening to it again. Um, for me, the gold nuggets, um, were her firm belief, most firm belief in the model. She was passionate about the model. She was passionate about profit sharing. She learned to spread the news of the model that she was passionate about through teaching. She was obsessed with implementing Gary's vision, and she knew how to create standards and hold people to those standards, which came from her values. Wow. So much to learn from Mo Anderson. Now, the special treat is that was just part one of the interview. Later this week, we're going to be launching part two of the interview. And I cannot wait for you guys to hear how much more in depth we went and all, all the things that I was able to learn and that you're able to learn from Mo Anderson. So be on the lookout for this bonus episode later on this week. And we cannot wait for you to learn and continue to not only build a big business, but an even bigger life. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please leave us a five-star review and get out there and focus on your big business. But don't forget that bigger life as well. Bye.